Well, I invite you now to open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. And this morning we'll be looking at verses 9 and 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. So the Apostle Peter has been laying out the description of who the church is and that we get our identity from Jesus Christ. And so he continues that in this uh, wonderful passage that we're about to look at this morning. So 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9. Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these amazing words to the church. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Again, what Peter wants to drill into the minds and hearts of his readers is that they must never forget who they are and what they have in Jesus Christ. That we get our very identity from Christ Himself. And already He has told them in verse 4 that Jesus Christ is the living stone. Verse 5, you are living stones. Christ is the cornerstone of the temple. You are a spiritual, <clears throat> excuse me, spiritual temple. In other places in the New Testament, Christ is the high priest who offered himself as a sacrifice. But now we are spiritual priests offering spiritual sacrifices. Christ is a chosen one, we are chosen. And in other places in the New Testament, Christ is the bridegroom, we are the bride. Christ is the head, we are the body. Christ is the shepherd, we are the sheep. We get our identity from our union with Jesus Christ through faith in Him. So this truth is going to be developed uh, more in our passage uh, this morning as we understand that our union with Christ determines our identity. And I think it's important that we always remember this because we, we have a tendency towards spiritual amnesia where we forget who we are. And so we come together on Sundays. Yeah, we're the, we're the church. We're God's people. But on Monday, we get sunk into all the busyness and all the helter-skelter of, of life and all the craziness. And we forget who we are. And when we forget who we are, it changes how we act and how we live. Just for those of y'all that have seen the Jason Bourne movies, uh, the CIA black ops asset that was trained as an assassin. And on one mission, he decides not to assassinate his target. And as he flees, he gets shot in the back. He falls into the ocean and he's eventually rescued, but he now he has amnesia. He doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know, can't remember anything about his past. And that amnesia turns his life upside down and the whole rest of the movies are about him trying to discover who he is and what he's about. 
and eventually he realizes he he learns he's Jason Bourne, and then later on he realizes that his real name is David Webb. But the the whole movie, the set of movies, goes through all the dangers and the difficulties that he has to live through because he doesn't remember who he is. And in the very same way, we as Christians can can lose contact with who we are in Christ by the grace of God. And when that happens, it impacts how we live, how we speak, how we think. So we need to be reminded of who we are in Christ Jesus. And when we have spiritual amnesia, it will drastically affect the quality of our Christian life and will begin to live more like the world than like an adopted child of God. So in verse 9 and 10, Peter is reminding them who they are. And they actually get their identity from their relationship, their union with Jesus Christ. Now what's interesting about these descriptions in verse 9 is that Peter is drawing back to the Old Testament. Descriptions that refer to Israel, the nation of Israel, now being applied to the New Covenant Church. Very interesting as we work through these. The very first one that he mentions is the fact that uh, we are a chosen race. And my clicker... Oh, okay. There we go. So we are a chosen race in verse 9. Now notice that uh, this reference is a reflection of Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 15, that says, He chose their descendants after them, even you above all people, as it is this day. So He chose Israel. This is a quotation of God choosing Israel to be a chosen race. In Isaiah 43, verse 20, He refers to Israel as My chosen people. But now Peter applies that to the church. We have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. So we've been chosen. God chose Israel, but Israel didn't live up to their high calling as God's chosen people. They oftentimes compromised that and sinned and fell away from that. But the church now assumes that title. Notice we are a chosen race or a chosen people, or a chosen generation your Bibles may have. And what this is indicating is that all believers are united in one family of God. We have a common heritage by virtue of we all share the new birth in Christ Jesus. So we're a part of this one family with a common heritage. And regardless of our physical nationalities, from what ethnic groups we come from, we have been placed and chosen to be a part of this chosen race, this spiritually chosen race, where we are all brothers and sisters. We're all a part of the same spiritual people of God. So we're a chosen race. Secondly, he says that we are a royal priesthood. And this comes from Exodus chapter 19, verse 6 where it says of the nation of Israel that you are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests. Now the church is both a kingdom 
and priests. So within Israel, remember the priesthood was just a subset of the uh, the population within Israel. Uh, so that the, the priest was from the tribe of Levi. The king always came from the tribe of Judah. Okay, so you couldn't be both a priest and a king under the old covenant within the nation of Israel. They're always separate and distinct. But the prophecies were that when the coming Messiah would arrive, he would be both a king and a priest because the priesthood would change. He would not be a priest under the, under the Levitical priesthood, but under Melchizedek, who is both a priest and a king. And the Messiah would actually hold both offices. Because we are identified with Christ, we also share in those two privileges. We become a, a royal priesthood. We become royalty. We're in the royal family. We become kings in, in that regard, but we're also priests just like the Lord Jesus Christ was. So in a very real way, what we have now become as the church, as a royal priesthood, indicates that we not only serve as priests, Peter already indicated that in verse 5 when he described us as a holy priesthood. Here it's a royal priesthood because now we are royalty. We're a part of the king's family. We share in that. And it's interesting, uh, John in Revelation chapter 5, verse 10 says, You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So we reign. We reign now through the gospel. We'll reign in the glorious sense when Christ comes back. But we are now kings and priests to God. So what Israel was in her calling that she failed to live up to because of her idolatry and her apostasy, now that privilege, that status has been given to the new covenant church. We're now a holy and a royal priesthood as Paul says here in verse 9. Next, we also are described as a holy nation. This comes from Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God called Israel out from among all the nations of the earth to be a holy nation. Did she live up to her high calling? No, she failed miserably. Eventually, had to be uprooted and cast out of the land because of her sin and her unfaithfulness. But she was called to be a holy nation. And it's interesting that in the New Testament, that privilege, that calling is now given to the New Covenant Church. We become a holy nation in Jesus Christ. So it's a very phenomenal uh, description of God's church. Uh, as a nation, we spiritually, as a spiritual nation, we have the same laws, we have the same king, we have the same citizenship, we have the same privileges, we have the same heavenly country as our inheritance. And we're holy, we're a holy nation because in Christ Jesus we are set apart for the worship and the service of Almighty God. We are in the world, but not of the world. 
So that now the church becomes the holy nation of the Lord. Now to understand this transformation, remember we get our identity from Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ actually came to become a new Israel. It's interesting in Isaiah chapter 49 verse 3, as Isaiah is prophesying about the coming of Jesus Christ, he is described as being a my servant Israel. So the Messiah was going to come and be everything that Israel failed to be. So in the midst of Israel as a nation's failure, her sin, her apostasy, her faithlessness, the Messiah would come and He would embody what Israel was supposed to be. He would be the new Israel Himself. And that's why in Isaiah 49 verse 3, that whole passage is a, is a prophecy of the Messiah where God says to the Messiah, you are my servant Israel. So Jesus Christ, the Messiah, came to be Israel. Now Matthew in his Gospel picks up on this theme and develops it in a very interesting way. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, this is when uh, Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus had to flee to Egypt. And eventually when King Herod died, God called Jesus and his parents, Joseph, his adopted parent, back into the land. But this is what Matthew writes, that he remained there until the death of Herod, remained in Egypt. And this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, the prophet who said these words was Hosea. And if you look at Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, Hosea prophesies that God called my son out of Egypt. And that refers to the nation of Israel. That's what happened in the Exodus, right? When God called his son Israel out of Egypt. That's what God did with the nation of Israel. But Matthew now applies this prophecy that refers to the coming Messiah, which related back to the Exodus that dealt with the nation of Israel. He now applies it to Jesus Christ. So when Jesus as a baby came out of Egypt, that prophecy was fulfilled. What is Matthew saying? Matthew is saying that Jesus Christ, my son, is the new Israel. And just as in the Exodus, God called Israel out of Egypt, so now the new Israel God is calling out of Egypt. Only this Israel is not the nation, it's His Son, Jesus Christ. See, Christ is my servant Israel. He came to fulfill the role of Israel where Israel failed to live up to its calling. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew develops this more. He'll say that um, as Israel was called out of Egypt, again, Jesus was called out of Egypt. As Israel, as she was called out of Egypt in the Exodus, then was baptized in the Red Sea. So Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. And what Matthew begins to do is to draw the parallels between the experience of Jesus and the experience of Israel coming out of Egypt. 
So as Israel was baptized in the Red Sea, Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. As Israel was led in the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus was led into the wilderness for 40 days. You see the parallel that Matthew begins to develop. Where Israel failed in the wilderness and continually complained and sinned against God in the wilderness, Jesus passes every test. The three temptations of Satan He overcomes. He's what Israel should have been. He's the new Israel that actually does what Israel's calling should have had her to do. But she failed. Then Jesus, instead of receiving the law on the mountain as Israel made His way to Mount Sinai, He goes up on the mountain and He gives the law. The Sermon on the Mount. And you see all these amazing parallels where Jesus is coming as the new Israel. That's why, for example, why, why did He choose 12 apostles? Is there a parallel there with the 12 tribes of Israel? What does that indicate? He's forming a new Israel. A new covenant Israel. That by the grace of God and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit will be what the nation of Israel never was. And then as we read in Numbers 11 earlier, where Moses calls 70 people to, to help him in judging the people. Jesus called 70 people in the Gospel of Luke and sent them out to preach the Gospel. Why did he, why did he choose 70 and send them out? It's a parallel with the nation of Israel. So that Jesus Christ is coming to form a new covenant Israel. And He is that Israel. So all the events in the life of Jesus were designed to correspond to Israel's history to showcase the parallel so as to present Jesus Himself as that new Israel. But now Christ has been crucified, raised from the dead, ascended up to heaven. The true Israel is now in heaven. Just as He was the true temple, He is now in heaven. But because we are His body, we now become that spiritual temple. We, we now become that new spiritual Israel in Christ. I think that's why Jesus in His parable of the landowner with all of the, uh, the growers that He rented it out to, that He sent His servants to get the produce and they killed His servants. He sent His son, they killed His son. And then Jesus said to them, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. Who's it taken away from? Well, the Jewish nation. Who's it given to? Another nation. A different nation that will produce the fruit of it. And that will be the church in my understanding of this passage. So even though Christ has gone to heaven, we're identified with Christ. We are united with Christ. And since He came to be the true Israel of God, and though He's in heaven because of our union with Him, our identity is with Him, we become the spiritual Israel on earth. That's why we find so many descriptions in the New Testament that make the church look like and act like and have the designations of Israel. For example, we are the true Jew in Romans 2 because we have the true circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. We are sons of Abraham by faith in Galatians 3.7. 
Now, it doesn't matter if you're a physical Jew or not. By faith, every believer is now a son of Abraham. They're a part of that spiritual nation of Israel. By faith, we're heirs of Abraham in Christ. Galatians 3.29 So if you're a son of Abraham, you have, you have the, the right to all the promises and all the blessings in the Abrahamic covenant. That's what we as believers now have. So now we're identified as the new spiritual Israel in Christ. So Paul could say in Ephesians 3.6 that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Who are we fellows with? Fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers. We're the believing Jews. So that now we are grafted in. Unbelieving Jews are, are pruned away. Romans 11. But now believing Gentiles, the very mystery of Christ, are grafted into this new covenant spiritual Israel. So that now we enjoy all the blessings that were promised to Israel that she never could attain to because of her unbelief and idolatry. Now the church does not replace Israel. But rather, Old Testament Israel was promised and prophesied that she would be transformed into the new covenant Israel. Some people get all hung up. Well, then you're saying the church replaces Israel. No, Israel is transformed into the new covenant church, which is now the spiritual Israel of God. Believing Jews, believing Gentiles now become a part of that because Christ is the true Israel. He fulfills everything that Israel couldn't fulfill. But we are joined to Him by faith. That's why we're sons of Abraham. That's why we're heirs of Abraham through faith in Christ. So it's not replacement, it's transformation. So the old nation of Israel that had the remnant in there and a lot of unbelievers, now as it moves through, it's transformed into the new covenant. The remnant continue on, but the unbelievers are pruned off and believing Gentiles are grafted in. That's what makes up the new covenant spiritual Israel of God. So these are, these are amazing things that Peter is saying about the church. We are now a holy nation. And he's taking the very title and designation for old covenant Israel and now applying it to new covenant Israel. Only it's true for us in Christ. And it no longer has the ethnic boundaries like it did in the old covenant. So this is quite an amazing description. Peter goes on to say in verse 10 that we are a people for God's own possession. Now again, he's referring to the church, but this comes out of the Old Testament. This was God's desire for the nation of Israel. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. But God chose Israel to be His special prized possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now this idea of being His own possession is now attributed to the church of Jesus Christ. 
we become God's own possession. That was the privilege, the status, the blessing of Israel. But because of her sin, she defaulted on that. Christ came as the new Israel to constitute the perfection of what those ideas meant. And we join with Him, share in that, so that we become a people for God's own possession. This idea is far more means far more than ownership. That God possesses us because He has redeemed us through the blood of Christ. So that's why we share in being His own people and His own possession. Now the world doesn't look at us that way. The world looks at us as scum and rubbish and worthy of persecution and extermination. But what Peter is reminding us is look at who you are in Christ. You are a people for God's own possession. That's who you are. God possesses you. He delights in you. He has written our names on the palm of His hand. We are the apple of His eye and He will not lose one of us. We are His beloved children. He delights in us. He delights in our prayers and our obedience and our devotion. His thoughts. He delights in us. We are precious to Him in such a way that His thoughts toward us outnumber the sand. He loves us with an everlasting love and even our death is precious to Him because that's when He brings us into our heavenly home. That's our homecoming. It's when the believer dies. We are His specially prized possession. He has made us to be the bride of His Son. He's made us to be the, the sheep of our great shepherd, the sheep of His pasture. And we're a temple for His special dwelling, indwelling through the Holy Spirit. We're His special possession. And it's amazing that He would take Gentiles who are originally outside the covenant, idolaters, and by His grace, graft us into this incredible status and privilege that we have in Christ. And it's all to the praise of the glory of His grace. We don't deserve any of this. We are actually born into this world by nature, children of wrath, And by His grace, we have been adopted into being His people. His possession. And knowing that special status that we have, God's attitude towards us, how can it not stir our hearts to respond in Him, back to Him in greater love and devotion and praise? Peter goes on to say, But you are not a people, but now the people of God. In verse 10, I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. This comes from Hosea chapter 2, verse 23. This is an interesting passage because in Hosea, this prophet is actually referring to Israel, the nation of Israel. That through their sin and idolatry, they were not God's people any longer. But he says, a time will come when I will call you back into fellowship with me. In other words, when Israel 
sinned against God and turned away against God and began to live as idolaters. They, they were living just like the pagans. They were physically Jews, but they were spiritually Gentiles. And God is saying to them that a day will come when though you are not My people because of your sin, I will make you My people again. And that truth develops this whole concept of the inclusion of those who are physically Gentiles who now get grafted in and become part of My people. And that's how Peter is using it here in verse 10. He is quoting this that originally referred to Israel, but now he's referring it to the church. And the church that he's writing to was made up predominantly of Gentile believers. There were Jews there, of course, as well. Jewish believers. But primarily Gentile. And he's saying, you are now my people. You are the people of God. So now the church takes that incredible standing and status before God as being the people of God. And then, finally, as far as our description, Peter writes in verse 10, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And this is not so much a quotation from the Old Testament as just a summary of the status of these believers in the church. Formerly, they had no mercy, but now they have received the mercy of God. And it's a fitting way to end this section because Peter back in verse 3 began this whole section with the mercy of God and now like bookends, he ends with mercy. Remember back in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So that now we have received mercy as Gentile believers. And that mercy, of course, is sovereignly given. It's a mercy that is something that uh, God grants to us. And all of these titles in the Old Testament, as you read them in the Old Testament, were, distinct, were designed to distinguish Israel from the Gentiles, from the nations. But now Peter applies them all to the New Covenant church made up of believing Jews and believing Gentiles who now inherit the promises and the privileges and the status of Israel. You say, well then what, what's with the nation of Israel today? How should we think about them? My, my personal understanding of that is that God has certainly providentially preserved the nation of Israel for a purpose. He has promised that He would always be saving a remnant so the nation, Jews, need to be around. And in His providence, He has, he has kept them as a nation, particularly in 1948 when they came back into the land. But it's there that He will save a remnant out of the nation. He's promised He will do that until He comes back. So you got to have the people of Israel still here. And that's part of God's purpose for their still being here because God is saving that remnant. Hopefully at the end of time, there will be a great revival among the nation of Israel. Uh, and if that occurs, then all of those Jews who come to faith in Jesus Christ will enter into the church at that point. 
I don't think there's a separate and distinct future for the nation of Israel. Uh, God ain't going to go backwards and go back into the old covenant again. We're in the new covenant. The spiritual nation of Israel is a church. And if all these Jews come to faith, then they will be brought in. They'll be regrafted back in to the spiritual nation of Israel that we're a part of as well. So that's my understanding of, of the physical nation of Israel today. They are an ally of our own country, America. And I think they're worthy of our support and our help in that regard. So, uh, so God certainly still has that as a part of His uh, plan for them. Okay, having reviewed now our identity in Christ, what we have become in the Lord Jesus Christ, let's go back to verse 9 and briefly look at our charge. Because now Peter, who has described our character, who we are in Christ, now gives us our charge. That is our mission. That what we're to be about. And so we read in verse 9 that the charge of the church is so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So Peter has told us our identity in Christ. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We have received His mercy. So how should that impact us? What, how should we live our lives? Well, he tells us in verse 9, now that you have received an understanding of who you are in Christ, the blessings that you've received as His new covenant spiritual Israel, this is your job. Proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. In other words, we're to proclaim the excellencies of God. You and I, because of who we are in Christ, because of our identity in Christ, are to be like billboards. We're to be like advertisements for the glory of God. We're to proclaim the excellencies of the God who has, who has showered His mercy upon us and made us into who we are. We can do that in two ways. Number one, we can proclaim the excellencies of Him as we worship Him. Isaiah 43 verse 21 says, The people whom I form for Myself will declare My praise. So you and I now as a holy nation, we as a spiritual priesthood, we as a, a chosen race, should proclaim the excellencies of this God. We should worship Him. Declaring His mercy and grace who has called us out of darkness into His light. We can proclaim the excellencies of God in His person, His attributes, and in His works. We can proclaim His excellencies by our words and by our works. The way we live out our life, we can proclaim the excellencies of God. We can lay forth His attributes which are eternal. His holiness, His glory, His justice, His grace, His love, His wrath, His power, His wisdom. We can proclaim the excellencies of God. 
We can proclaim it in His works of creation. We can proclaim it in His works of redemption. We proclaim the excellent because that's what the holy nation does. That's what Israel should have done, but failed to do. That's what Christ did come to do and did. And because of our identity and union with Him, that is our mission as well. And we can do that as we worship the living God. We can also do it as we proclaim His excellencies in evangelism. That we're to proclaim that this great God of mercy has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And this is the message of the Gospel we're to share with those who are still in darkness. We're to proclaim through the Gospel to those who are still lost that God is the one who saves us out of darkness and brings us into His light. What is the darkness here? Well, darkness is oftentimes a symbolism for the state of sin and spiritual blindness and bondage. You're in the dark. And most of the world except for the church, all of the world except for the church, is in this kind of darkness. But in Christ, we have forgiveness of sin. In Christ, we can be brought out of this darkness into His marvelous light. That we can enjoy the blessings of God, the forgiveness, the grace, the salvation, the hope of heaven. So that when we proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light, we can proclaim the love of God for sinners. We can proclaim His grace, His, His mercy through the blood of Jesus Christ which can save any sinner who repents and turns to Him in saving faith. This is part of our message. This is part of our calling. This is our charge to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And notice the word called. We have been called out of darkness into His marvelous light. This isn't just not the call of the preacher, which people can say, eh, not for me, another time. This is a call of God. We're proclaiming the excellencies of God who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. That means this calling is effectual. This is a call of God. People in the dark love the darkness. That's what Jesus said in John 3. That He was the light, but the people loved the darkness. They lived in the darkness. They loved the darkness. They're not going to leave the darkness unless they are called by God to come out. And then they come out. Without that effectual call of God. No, they're not leaving the darkness. That's where, that's where all the things are that they love exist in the darkness. It'd be no different than Lazarus who's dead in the tomb, Lazarus isn't going to come out of the state of death until he receives that effectual call from Jesus Christ. Lazarus come forth. And then the power and the life were inserted into his dead soul. And he awakes and he comes out of it. But it's that effectual, powerful, creative call of God that brought Lazarus out of death into life. And it's that same powerful, miraculous, effectual call that brings a sinner who loves his darkness to come out into his marvelous light. 
This is an effectual call of God. And we're to proclaim that the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. This is something you see that only God can do. And Paul in in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 elaborated on this very idea when he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, in whose case the God of this world, that would be Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not, might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So not only do we have our own depraved, corrupt blindness of heart that prevents us from seeing the glory of Christ, Satan has added another layer of darkness, another layer of spiritual blindness to the souls of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the Gospel. They don't see it. There's a double layer of blindness that shrouds their heart and they don't see the glory of Christ. But then in verse 6, Paul says, For God who said... Light shall shine out of darkness. Now when did God say that? In Genesis chapter 1. On day 1. When God created the earth and there was originally darkness surrounding the earth. And then God said, let there be light. And when God spoke those words, the very power of His Word created that light. And Paul is saying in this passage, that's exactly what happened to you spiritually on the day you were saved. He says, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's that divine speaking, that divine call where God said to creation in Genesis 1, let there be light and suddenly there was light. And the same way with us spiritually in the midst of our darkness, God called us and He said, let there be light within their soul. And suddenly, the light shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Again, it's that effectual, creative, powerful call of God that has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And this light is marvelous because it's not a man-made light. This is a God-made light. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 118, verse 23, This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. So God has called us out of our depravity, out of our sin, out of our spiritual darkness. The darkness which we loved. The darkness that we would never leave. But He called us out by His power. And it is into His marvelous light because He created that light within us. It's a miraculous light. It's a supernatural light. It's a marvelous light. And so, we are to proclaim the excellencies of God who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Well, 
Peter wants to remind us not to forget who we are. Remember who you are in Christ Jesus. Don't forget it. You're remembering it now? But Monday through Saturday and next Sunday, every day of the week, remember who you are in Christ. Don't forget. Because whenever we we forget these truths, then we slip back into that spiritual amnesia. The loss and amnesia as a physical condition has plagued many people and drastically altered and damaged their life because they cannot remember who they are or what they did. Even Agatha Christie, who captivated readers with her novels, all the detective mysteries, you've probably read some of them. She experienced her own mystery in 1926 when she disappeared herself for 11 days and was found 200 miles away from her abandoned car. And when they found her, she couldn't remember where she had been or what had happened to her. And one of the worst things was she couldn't remember her husband. Now, the, the, the understory is, is she faked all of this because her husband had cheated on her and she was getting back at him. That I don't even know who you are. So I don't know if there's any truth to that. But she couldn't remember her husband. And I think when we as God's children and as the bride of Christ forget who we are in the Lord Jesus, sometimes we can forget who our heavenly husband is. We can forget that he has died and rose again to save us from our sins. He has died to call us as His children and to give us His own perfect righteousness and give us an inheritance in heaven forever. See, when we forget who we are, when we forget what we have in Christ Jesus, then suddenly we lose contact with these spiritual realities and we start drifting back into who we shouldn't be. Maybe who we once were before God saved us when we forget who we are in Christ. We need to always remember what the Lord has done for us. We must always remember what He has chosen us to be. A chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation. His prized possession to be His people that we might live for Him and proclaim His excellencies to the world. Well, when we forget these things, we we stop living that way and we start acting like we belong to the world. This is kind of the sad example of the prodigal son who I think woke up and over a period of time realized that he wanted to be someone other than his father's son. He wanted to go someplace else and live a different life. And he did. He left his family. He left his home. In effect, he forgot who he was. And as we know, he ended up in the pig pen. As Christians, I think we need to always be on guard of our own hearts. Because if we forget who we are, if we forget our family, if we forget our people, if we forget our priesthood, if we forget our our calling as a holy nation, 
then we lose contact with our family, with our people, with our race, and we start living more like the world than like the bride of Christ. And we too, like the prodigal son, will end up eating from the slop bucket of the world and will be starving on the inside when we forget who we are. So may the Lord help us to remember what we have become in Christ Jesus. That we might proclaim the excellencies of God. That we might remember all that we have become in Christ because of what He has done for us. And may that stir our hearts to live more for Him and to live up to our high and holy calling as His prized and redeemed people. Psalm 103 verse 2 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. And may that be true of us. May we forget none of the benefits calling the blessings that we have in Christ. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father God, we are utterly amazed as unworthy sinners, Lord, idolaters by nature, God-haters and children of wrath, and yet in Your mercy, You called us out of the darkness of death into Your marvelous light. And You have called us out of the world to be Your special people. To be that chosen race. To be that holy nation. To be that holy and royal priesthood. To be Your own people prized and loved and delighted in by You. Lord, how we ever entered into the glory of our calling, we will never understand but You have loved us with an everlasting love. And You have sent Your only begotten Son to die on the cross and to suffer for our sins and to pay the full penalty for all of our iniquities and transgressions and sins. He suffered the wrath of God for them that we might know Your love and know Your forgiveness as we come humbly before You and believe and trust Jesus Christ alone as our Lord and Savior. So God, help us not to forget. Help us to remember who we are in Christ. Not just on the Lord's Day, but every day of the week. That our lives, our words, our actions might reflect this high and holy calling that we have received from You. And may all this be to your praise. Lift up your excellencies that your glory might be exalted over all. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.